What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we'll be diving into the world of crime, immigration and the cruel realities of the American dream. Investigative journalist Patrick Radenkeefe joins us on the podcast with the story of Sister Ping, an infamous human smuggler who handled a complex and lucrative operation transporting Chinese migrants into the United States. With compelling storytelling and meticulous research, Radenkeefe takes us on a gripping journey into the underworld of human smuggling and the human toll it takes on those seeking a better life. Our host for this episode is writer, podcast producer and investigative journalist Poppy Damon. Here's Poppy with more. I'm joined today by Patrick Radden-Keefe, investigative journalist and staff writer for The New Yorker. He won the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction in 2021 for his book, Empire of Pain, which examines the history of the Sackler family, the dynasty they built from Big Pharma and their role in America's opioid crisis. You may also know him from his incredible podcast, Wind of Change, which investigates a rumor that the song Wind of Change by German rock band, The Scorpions, was secretly written by the CIA. Why? Perhaps as a soft power effort to bring down the Iron Curtain, the power of song. Today, he joins me to talk about one of his first ever investigative stories, the story which pivoted his career away from law and into journalism. The Snakehead, a story about a smuggling empire in the heart of New York's Chinatown and the nightmarish realities of the American dream, was first published in The New Yorker in 2006. Years later, it was published as a book. And this month, it is being published in the UK for the first time. So let's dive in now to the story of Sister Ping, the charismatic middle-aged grandmother and local Chinatown hero who led a multi-million dollar people smuggling enterprise riddled with violence and crime. Patrick, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's so great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Now, I'm going to start off, take, take me back to law school when you first came across this story. Who were you in that final year and how did you come across this incredible tale? Yeah, it, it, I, I sort of stumbled across it at a, an interesting juncture in my life. I had, I had gone to law school, not particularly wanting to be a lawyer, but because I was, I was desperately trying to make it as a writer and failing. And I felt like I need a backup plan of some sort. And I ended up writing my first book, actually, when I was in law school, a book called Chatter, which was about surveillance by government agencies. And it did all right, but not well enough that I was sure there was any career in writing for me on the other side. And what happens, I finished up the year at law school, and then I was studying for the bar exam to kind of to get the certification to be a practicing attorney in New York. 
And I was at NYU in downtown New York City, and every day I would walk to these classes, and I would pick up. It was so boring the class that I would pick up a one of the newspapers, usually one of the New York tabloids, with me and a, and a coffee, and I'd sit in the back of the room and ignore the lectures <laughs> and um, read the the tabs. And that summer, they were covering this sensational trial, which was happening not far from where I was actually sitting at NYU in a in a federal courthouse in downtown New York City of this woman named Cheng Chui Ping, who was known as Sister Ping. And she was um, what is known in Chinese as a snakehead. So she was a human smuggler, somebody who had brought loads of people uh, from the part of China that she came from to New York City illegally and made a great fortune in the process. And I was just so intrigued by this figure and the idea that she ran this big criminal operation. And then the thing that made me think that this might be a story worth exploring was that I read one story about how the federal government was making her out to be this terrible criminal who should go away to prison for a long time. But in Chinatown, she was revered as a hero. And there were all of these people who were actually volunteering to serve her time for her. You know, that they would do, one person would do one year, another person would do another because they wanted to spare her. And that to me seemed, that kind of duality, the idea that this one person could be seen in those two different ways seemed very intriguing. And if you could paint a little bit of a picture of Sister Ping, sort of before we know all the details of what she got up to, what what was she like as a woman and, and how would you describe her? Well, part of what was so alluring about her to me as a subject was her her kind of unobtrusiveness. She was, she was very much, she was a, a middle-aged uh, mother in Chinatown who ran several businesses. She had a convenience store. She had a restaurant. And she was known as sort of hardworking even by the standards of the neighborhood. She dressed in a very unostentatious, unglamorous way. She came to work early. She left work late. And I don't think that anybody if they clocked her on the street, would have thought that this was a criminal mastermind or a multimillionaire, for that matter. There was a kind of modesty and unpretentiousness in her bearing that was very much her signature. And part of what I ended up doing was spending years kind of peeling back the layers of this criminal enterprise that she had, which wasn't just human smuggling. There were all kinds of things she was doing. But if you talk to people in the neighborhood, they would say, oh, Sister Ping, we love Sister Ping. You know, she's the one that you, you see always behind the counter of her restaurant. There was a sense of her as this kind of homespun, hardworking, modest, self-effacing character. Wow. And, and tell me a bit about that early journalism. Did you kind of walk around the neighborhood and, and talk to people and, and were they willing to talk? Yeah, it was so. It was an interesting experience because I had um, uh, to, to kind of pick up my story. I ended up passing the bar exam, qualifying to become a lawyer. There was a law firm that expected me to come and start working there that fall, but I really didn't want to, and I was so intrigued by the story. And I had actually I'd been pitching the New Yorker magazine for years unsuccessfully, and this was the first pitch that they took, and so I put off the law firm and. Initially, the New Yorker didn't give me the assignment. They said, I think they had a, a concern, understandable concern, that as somebody who was not Chinese, didn't speak Chinese, that I might fail to, you know, to, to be able to tell the story with a kind of intimacy and authenticity that would make the whole undertaking worth it. And so they said, go out and prove to us that you can find some real sources in Chinatown. So I spent a couple of months just knocking on doors with a notebook and introducing myself to people and finally found some people who were willing to talk to me a bit. And 
that was kind of the way in for me to the neighborhood. And, and I was able to get over that threshold of persuading the New Yorker that they should give me a shot at doing this piece and that my outsider status wouldn't prevent me from telling the story in a way that felt rigorous. And then just spending a lot of time in Chinatown, getting to know people and tracking down these, the, 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 the story kind of, the story starts in this very dramatic way in 1993 with the arrival of this ship called the Golden Venture, which was a smuggling ship, which had come all the way around the world with 300 people in its hold, this incredible journey that took 120 days. And some of them were customers of Sister Ping. And so some of what I was doing was tracking down the people who'd been on this ship, the Golden Venture, who hadn't all stayed in New York. Some of them had fanned out to other places across the country. And before we go any further into the story, I did want to ask you, do you think that part of the reason that people wanted to speak to you was that you mentioned it sort of existed in the tabloids, but maybe it hadn't had the kind of exposure to the rigorous journalism you ended up doing? Why why did it live a different life in the tabloids, I suppose, before the New Yorker featured? Yeah, I mean, it's it is true that the the, the coverage in the tabloids was very sensationalist and kind of you know, trial of the dragon lady, you know, kind of um, really leaned into a lot of kind of jingoistic cultural tropes. But to be honest with you, I don't know that that made a difference to the people in the neighborhood. I mean, I have found that there are some environments where when I go out and report the fact that I am writing for the New Yorker specifically, or the fact that I've written books or what have you, that that matters a lot in some corners of the world where I go. And it, it's a kind of credit for me, it gets me. It helps ease the way, and there there are other places where it doesn't matter at all, and they've never heard of the New Yorker, and they don't care. Chinatown would be very much that. I was like a white guy with a notebook, which, in and of itself, was a kind of a, a threatening. Pro- some of the places that I mean, there were certainly these like, you know, some of these kind of basement mahjong parlors or what have you that I would, I would knock on the door and walk in, and it was clear that I was a very unwelcome presence. And I would have to kind of make clear that I wasn't like a government bureaucrat. I wasn't there from immigration trying to check people's papers. No, it was more, I mean, if I made headway, eventually it was, um, it was because I cultivated a few people in the neighborhood who had a lot of relationships and I sort of persuaded them that what I was doing was worthy. And then they opened up a lot of doors for me. That makes sense. Well, you've, you've alluded to this ship. T- take us through the, the, the story of how she became the kind of mogul, is that the right word? The kind of sister ping that she became yeah so she you know initially she comes over in the early 1980s to the united states and uh she has a kind of hapless husband chung yuk tak who's who's just a less formidable he's always second fiddle to his wife he's a less formidable figure but sister ping was very entrepreneurial she had grown up in a a place in china called fujian province which is kind of sliver of coastline in southeast china and Fujian is this really interesting region. It's kind of known for its entrepreneurialism. It's across the strait from Taiwan. And so uh, it's very outward looking and always has been. And if you look back over hundreds of years, uh, what the Fujianese often did was leave. It's funny, I subsequently wrote a book about Northern Ireland and I thought a lot about the sort of Irish diaspora around the world. And it's a slightly similar thing where if you go to... Germany or Australia or Malaysia or Canada, you'll find these robust Chinese communities and often they they trace their origins back to Fujian province. And so Sister Ping had this kind of 
maybe the spirit of adventure and even exile that you kind of grew up with in Fujian province. And she leaves initially for Hong Kong and then to New York City. And very quickly, like within a couple of years, she starts sending for people. And it's funny, initially, I wondered how she'd be able to get into the business so quickly. But it turns out her father before her was what's known as a snakehead. And these are, I should say, just for, for the sake of clarity, this is not human trafficking in the sense that you have people who don't want to move from one country or another, or they're being misled or taken advantage of or forced into you know, sexual servitude. Or uh, This is a situation in which you have people who want to leave one country for another. They don't have the papers. They can't get the papers. And they're willing to pay a broker to move them. So initially, she starts doing that in this kind of small way, where there'll be just a handful of people, and she'll get them phony documents. And she would actually accompany them on these flights that they would take. And at the time, she was getting paid $18,000 a person. It's a big amount. A yeah. big amount at that period as well. I mean, Absolutely. And more cash than most of the people had up front. So what would happen is that the... Um, it's funny because one of the sort of stereotypes is that people would come and work for years as indentured servants or what have you, but that doesn't actually make any sense. She was very, very entrepreneurial and a really brilliant businesswoman in a lot of ways. From her perspective, she doesn't want to be having to kind of chase after all these debtors who are in like year five of payback once they come to the US. So instead, what would happen is she would take a small deposit up front of just a few thousand dollars, get the people safely to the US, and then they would have something like 72 hours to pay back the balance. And they would borrow that from usually from family and friends. And she would be paid in full within about 72 hours. And it's a significant detail that during that period of time, they would be held sometimes at gunpoint um, until they could pay off the fee. And what happens is the business just gets bigger and bigger. There's more and more people who want to leave China, particularly after uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. And there's this huge influx of people who want to get to America. Her price goes up to $35,000. And she starts bringing people by ship. And so it really becomes this kind of jumbo business where all in, she ends up bringing thousands of people to the United States. And how does it work once she moves into ships? What's the method there? It's amazing to think about when you actually look at the vessels that they were using because it all feels so it feels like something out of um uh you know robert louis stevenson or it feels like a, a kind of a, a 19th century novel they would have these big cargo ships these um or tramp steamers and fill them up with hundreds of people and the ships were obviously you know hardly seaworthy very very dangerous but all these passengers are paying thirty five thousand dollars a head and they would not usually not come directly to the coast of the U.S. because they were worried about the Coast Guard. They would stay in international waters. And so what the snakeheads needed then was people to go out and meet the ships to offload them into smaller boats, usually smaller fishing vessels that would bring them in under cover of night. And for that, Sister Ping turned to a gang, uh, which was a very powerful gang in Chinatown at the time, made up of, of people largely from Fujian province, where she was from. It's known as the Fukqing Gang. And the leader of that gang was this young, uh, very charismatic murderer and gang leader named Ake. And so Sister Ping hires Ake 
to start offloading her ships. It's this interesting moment where she she had already been on the wrong side of the law, but at this point she goes into business with a really dangerous customer. And does she choose to go into business with him because basically to upscale and, and pull something like this off, she she has to go into cahoots with some some bad guys? I think so to some extent. I mean, to, to to some degree, you know, when you when we debate about the morality of Sister Ping, part of the part of what's interesting, right, is that it's there was a version of her job that would have been much safer for her customers, in which people wouldn't have died, and in which she wouldn't have needed to scale up in the way that she did. But she did choose to scale up in the way she did. And and Ake had this specialty, which was offloading ships. The really crazy part of this story is that she had history with him because Years earlier, when he was a newly arrived teenager who'd been smuggled into the United States, uh, and she was a kind of wealthy, already a wealthy figure in the neighborhood, he robbed her apartment at, she wasn't there, but um, at gunpoint, held her children at gunpoint and stole a bunch of money from her. And I find it so telling that she she didn't end up taking revenge or even, you know, blacklisting him and thinking this is somebody I'll never work with. Instead, it was almost as if this sort of establishes bona fides in her mind. And she was very pragmatic. You know, she was not somebody who had, um, who would either have great loyalty or hold a grudge if it meant that it would compromise a business opportunity. And so in the case of Ake, here's this guy who literally pointed a gun at her children. And she says, I have these ships coming. I need somebody who can offload them. It's a tricky business. And you have access to fishing boats and sailors who can go out there and do it. And so they went into business. That's amazing. And it's sort of that thing of uh, where some people see chaos, she sees opportunity. You know, she obviously saw something in <laughs> the way that he, you know, held up her children, I suppose. And what, when did she become known to her, the authorities? And when, and when did things start to take a bit of a darker turn in terms of some of those deaths that you alluded to as well? Yeah, I, I, I tell I sort of tell this whole interesting backstory in in the book because you know what happens is that in, in on June 6, nineteen ninety three, this ship, the Golden Venture, runs aground in Queens, New York, on the beach in Rockaway. If anybody's ever flown into New York City, you you often fly over this beach to get to JFK, and this ship runs aground. There are three hundred people on board. They start climbing up and jumping off the ship. There's a huge rescue operation. CNN is there. There's news cameras. It's the media capital of the world. America sort of wakes up to the fact that there's this massive problem of undocumented Chinese migration in these ships to the United States. But the truth is it had been happening for years. And in fact, I was able to piece piece it together. But Sister Ping is on the radar of the authorities, going right back to the 1980s. She had these smaller operations that would bring people over the Niagara River into upstate New York from Canada. There was a terrible incident in which there was a raft with a series of her passengers that went over the the rapids of the Niagara River in the dead of winter and capsized, and the passengers died. And so even at that point, the U.S. immigration authorities started investigating Sister Ping, but there's this amazing moment where one of these guys, a kind of hard-driving, old-school New York immigration investigator named Joe Acapinti, goes and visits Sister Ping in her shop. And he says, you know, I know what you're doing, and I'm going to get you. And she says, you don't have the resources to get me. 
you know, she is, she, she sort of knew that she was untouchable at that point. And at the moment, you know, at that point she was right. It's only really with the golden venture that she, she ends up having to go on the run and there's this huge international manhunt for her. It really is like a movie. Every time you describe a scene, I just think, wow, it's like straight out of a film. They need to make it into a film. <laughs> we're working on it. We're there's uh, we're yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, in the works with a 24. We're, we're, we're going to try and do it as a series. Oh, I love that. That's good. And tell me, is there a particular profile of the type of people that are coming over? I mean, is it is it young men? Is it families? Who's wanting to come and have the the better life that America can offer? Yeah, it's, you know, part of what's so strange about looking at this story, and this was true even when I initially was writing the book in 2006, 7, 8, was if you think about China and all the prosperity over the last several decades, it's it's kind of hard to imagine that in the very recent past, in the early 1990s, there was a whole generation of people who were desperate to get out of China because they felt as though they um, they weren't going to be able to make it there in the new economy and that they would do better to live on the margins of American society or British society or Australian or wherever else they happened to go. And in this case, that meant mostly young men not exclusively by any means, but I think there were, you know, there were about 10 women on the Golden Venture and about 290 men or 280 men. And many of them would go and leave families behind with the understanding that they would pay off their snakehead debt. And then, you know, in, in a month in New York City, even working at, in, a, in a little Chinese restaurant, they could make what you would take a, a year to make back in Fujian province. And so they would send back their earnings. And amazingly, often, as soon as they had paid off their debts to their snakehead, they would send back a down payment for some other relative to come. And so you have this incredible process where you have all these people who are leaving, often in these very perilous kind of modes of conveyance to get to the US, and then start sending money home. And then back in Fujian province, and I've been, you can see them, it's incredible. But out in the countryside in Fujian province, there are these great mansions that the families would build with the money that was sent to them by what they called the overseas Chinese. And what happens in some of these villages is that the, the mansions themselves empty out because everybody's so busy going to America. And so you get these kind of crazy villages where there are all these empty monuments to the prosperity of these people who've left. And I think that fed a kind of social contagion where you had more and more people wanting to go. I should say, so that's one kind of person. There's another kind of person who, uh, people who were, who were activists, pro-democracy activists who were cracked down on. Uh, the one-child policy was a big issue at the time. And so you either had men or women who, when they uh, had a second child, because in some cases were forcibly sterilized. This all gets tricky because when they arrived in America, it was legitimate for them to stay if they could prove that they'd been persecuted back in China. And so the, it's, it gets very, very tricky because there were people who were persecuted and left. I think there were many more people who just wanted a better life economically. But many of those economic migrants kind of posed as people who were fleeing the one-child policy or protesting for democracy because they thought that that would help them get a green card, get papers to stay in the U.S. So there have been different waves of immigration from China to the United States, and things kind of changed in the 80s. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you had um, long periods of time when it was very difficult for people legally to leave China and come to the United States at all. You know, you had a period in which there were not really all very active diplomatic relations between the two countries and, and no real viable route for people to get visas to come gradually that started to change. And there were a couple of really decisive 
vectors there. One was Tiananmen Square. So you have this big international spectacle in 1989 in which the tyranny of Beijing was was kind of there for the world to see. And so at that point, there were allowances made both for Chinese students who were already living in the United States to not return, but also for people who could demonstrate that they'd been involved in protesting for democracy to obtain asylum in the U.S. And the other thing that's very interesting is that you had the one-child policy, which had led to some draconian excesses in some places in which if you had families that violated the policy, uh, the men were sometimes forcibly uh, sterilized, the women as well. There were forced abortions for uh, some of the women. So these kind of quite alarming scenes. It was often difficult to determine how widespread that kind of conduct was, but it was definitely happening. And that kind of dovetails with this curio of American politics and policy, which is the anti-abortion stance of uh, a lot of Republican conservative lawmakers. And so there was this sort of interesting moment in which the Democratic Party, uh, led by Bill Clinton, who becomes president just a few months before the Golden Venture arrives, is much more skeptical about letting in asylum seekers from China. But the Republican Party, driven in part by these concerns about women being forced to have abortions, uh, is actually saying, no, 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 we should, we should let anybody who's, who's fleeing the prospect of a forced abortion come here. The challenge becomes just the sheer demographics, right? Because China was such a vast country and the one-child policy is this kind of, in theory, universally applied policy. And so, you know, you get into this, the, the tricky kind of numbers game that you always do in China. There, there's a famous, I think, apocryphal story about Jimmy Carter meeting with Deng Xiaoping at a time when uh, people couldn't legally leave China. It wasn't a right that you had. And Carter sort of admonishes uh, Deng about this and Deng kind of smiles at Carter and says, why, certainly, President Carter, how many million would you like? And you you kind of you, you get the sense that it's difficult to kind of come up with a like a universally applicable rule that says anybody who can fit these criteria will let them in because in theory, uh, you could end up with an unmanageable number of people. You might imagine having been held at gunpoint uh, until you could provide, stump up the other cash, that there would be sort of resentment. But it sounds like once that 72 hours had passed, there was a sort of community that formed and they would bring someone else over. So there wasn't a bitterness towards Sister Ping or anyone in her operation particularly? No, on the contrary, she was really celebrated in the neighborhood. She became this um, this kind of revered figure, both as a um, as an immigrant success story herself. You know, she built a she bought a, a big building on um, on East Broadway, the main thoroughfare in Chinatown where the Fujinese settled. Um, she also built a mansion back in Fujian Province herself. She built one of those kind of garish mansions. So she was celebrated as a as a, a success story, but also somebody who was, you know, kind of a like a like a godmother type figure, somebody who you could turn to if you needed help. And she she had this amazing innovation, which is that she realized that there were all of these customers of hers who would arrive in the US, pay off their debts, and then immediately start making money and sending as much of it as they could home. That was the big thing they wanted to do. And they would send it home through the Bank of China, which charged a big commission, 
And often it took a long time for it to get to people. And so Sister Payne realized at a certain point, she could set up her own underground bank to help facilitate these people who she had brought over who wanted to send money home. And she did it in this ingenious way. There are old systems dating back to the, you know, the Silk Road that operated this way, but it was a, a system in which the money itself generally didn't move. So she would have a big store of cash in Fujian province and a big store of cash in New York City. And if you wanted to send money back home, you might come in with $100. You'd come into the shop in New York, you'd give her $100, it'd be a small commission. And the next day, she would have one of her people in Fujian province take the equivalent of $100 uh, and you know get on a motorbike and bring it to your mother. And then when somebody else is paying off a snakehead debt from China, they would send $100 from Fujian province to New York. So as long as they balanced the books at the end of every month, the money itself never had to move. It was this ingenious bank and she operated it and it kind of helped further bind this community together. It is totally genius. It's so smart. Um, and when she became, we talked a little bit there about the authorities said, you know, I'm on to you. What became her undoing? Tell us a little bit about that manhunt or woman hunt and how they eventually captured her. It's very dramatic. She, she goes on the run after the Golden Venture and just vanishes. And it was clear to the FBI, which was pursuing her, that she was in China. They had intelligence to tell them that she was in China, but she was very connected and it was going to be impossible for them to get her. The Chinese government didn't want to turn her over. So it was this frustrating thing where they kind of knew that she'd gone back to her home village and she was still there. What was really strange was that then they started getting intelligence that she was still operating and even that she had been passing through these different countries. But when they saw her passport, you know, they were monitoring her passport, it didn't seem to have been used in these different countries. So they realized she had some kind of a fake passport that she was using and in fact came in and out of the United States at a time when the FBI was searching for her. So she continues to move around and to, to conduct her business. To, you know, she's still operating as a snakehead, even as they're trying to find her. There were a couple of things that, that really uh, marked her undoing. One was that she was always very devoted to family. And at a certain point, the FBI realized that she's probably traveling on a fake passport, so we don't have any idea what that identity is, but her kids might not be. And they started monitoring the travel of her children. And one of them was going to be in Hong Kong, which had a more kind of friendly relationship with the US in terms of law enforcement. So if they could get as far as Hong Kong, they could pick her up in Hong Kong. And sure enough, on a, on a given day that they knew that her son was going to be flying, she was in the airport in Hong Kong and they swarmed on her and arrested her. And she promptly hired the biggest, most famous criminal defense attorney in New York City, a guy named Jerry Shargell, who's the person who like all the big mobsters hired. But one of the big final twists in this story is that the FBI had a star witness against her. And that was the gangster, Ake, who she had gone into business with. And, and here's a guy who had killed multiple people, a really unsavory guy, but someone who, when he was arrested, immediately turned around and said, I can give you Sister Ping. And did he plea that out? So did that mean he never served time himself or got a lesser sentence? He did serve time, but he absolutely got a lesser sentence. And the ironies really multiply. He got a lesser sentence. Eventually, he got his US citizenship. 
And today he is he has kind of returned to the scene and is a very successful businessman in Chinatown who just opened a hotel in Flushing, Queens. No way. <laughs> it's amazing. And and what was the optics of the trial? I mean, what defense did she put up and, and what was she eventually convicted of precisely? So it was a series of charges relating to human smuggling and hostage taking and so forth. Her defense was was a little, it was interesting. The, the trial was dominated by discussion of the Golden Venture, that one ship. But the truth is there were a whole lot of different snakeheads who'd been involved in the Golden Venture. And uh, she only actually had two passengers on the ship who were paying her fees. She'd been very involved in an earlier ship with a lot of people on it um, that had got as far as Kenya. They take these kind of crazy routes and run around. And then the Golden Venture was sent to relieve that one. But by the time the Golden Venture arrived, there were only two passengers. So her lawyers were saying, look, you keep telling us about the Golden Venture, but really most of the blame for this is with other people, people like Ake, who was involved in the Golden Venture. But she, I think on a broader level, was arguing, listen, I've, you know, I'm a pillar of my community. I've helped so many people. There's a generation of people who who didn't have great prospects back in China who have been able to secure a degree of um, of comfort and kind of middle-class ambition for their children and grandchildren that they might not otherwise have had. And that's all thanks to me. I think there was a kind of a, it was like a category difference. She couldn't understand how it was that she was being made out to be this malevolent figure. And she's sentenced to, to serve her time in a, in a prison, I believe we'll be familiar with from the Orange is the New Black. And you corresponded with her. What did you learn from sort of writing letters to her? Well, it was amazing. You know, we had, when I first approached her, she, her initial response to my overture was, what's in it for me? Which I thought was the most sister ping thing ever. You know, <laughs> every, everything is a hustle. Um, and I finally, after a lot of persuading, I got her to say that I could come and visit her in the prison, FCI Danbury. And that was a, you know, as a journalist, those are the big moments that you, you really want to kind of get everybody to say, okay, you can come in and even the lawyer, everybody signed off, go in and see her in the prison. And then the prison warden said no. And that was so frustrating for me. And so instead what happened is I wrote these, these questions and letters. And there was a woman who was Sister Ping's interpreter and had been her interpreter throughout her whole kind of criminal justice saga. And that woman had access. She had privileges to go into the prison. And so there was this kind of strange thing in which I was very upset to not be able to go in myself, but it turned out to actually be a blessing in disguise because this woman, Lily, would translate my questions, go in, and then ask them of Sister Ping in Fujinese in her own dialect. And Sister Ping would respond to this person that she had great comfort with in her natural idiom. And Lily would take it all down, and then she would translate it back into English um, and give it to me. And, and that way, I got these amazing details about her childhood and her family and what it was like for her you know, during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, these big kind of traumatic moments in Chinese history and in her early days in Hong Kong and her early days in the US. And she had had a kind of a strange relationship with this one FBI agent who was sent to kind of handle her. Uh, but he was, a, he was a rookie, he was young. And it always seemed to me that maybe she was handling him more than he was handling her. And uh, that very much came out in her responses to me. So it was a strange way to communicate with somebody who you're writing a book about, but actually in a weird way, um, I think it yielded much more than it might have had I 
you know, across this great gulf of like of cultural difference between us, had I gone in on my own and spoken to her in the prison. And for you, I mean, I should say she she died in prison, I believe, in 2014. For you, looking back on this story that was your early journalism that you're now revisiting because it's being published in the UK, what do you think is the take home from her story? What do you think is the lesson or questions that it raises for us? Well, I mean, it's funny. So I, I hadn't reread the book until I did a very, very, very mild revision, just bring it up to date in the end and a few little tweaks here and there on the, um, on the UK edition. First time I'd reread it in uh, in a long time, and I was I was struck by how how timely it felt. I mean, it's strange because even when I was writing the book in two thousand and seven, eight, nine, I was writing about a you know it felt like a period piece about Chinatown in the nineties. Everything had changed so much. But of course, what it's really about is the global migration crisis and the fiendishly difficult decision that uh, you know any country from England to the U.S. to France to you name it wrestles with, which is who do we who do we allow to stay? You know, people are willing to take unbelievable risks to flee terrible situations and try and remake their lives on our shores. How much latitude do we accord, and who do, who do we let in? You know, if is it is it Chinese? Is it Syrians? Is it Afghans? Who do you make those allowances for? And if you do create a policy that feels more generous in terms of providing asylum or a refuge or a safe haven for people? Are you becoming a magnet that actually persuades other people who haven't left yet to take crazy risks in order to make it? I don't think any of these are easy questions, and I don't think any of them are distinctly American. I do think that there is a kind of, there is like the siren song of the American dream, right? That notion that if you can just make it there, that in one generation, you can make it big. And that, I think, does play an important role in this story. But I think the broader questions about what do we do about, you know, these massive populations of undocumented people who are in desperate straits and will take incredible risks to make it uh, from one country to another, that, that feels to me more resonant than ever. We talked a little bit there about how this story really raises questions about who we let in to, to certain borders and what should be the criteria which we judge people to become citizens. It also raises a question around the American dream. Do you think the American dream will ever die? Is it more alive than ever? I don't think it will ever die. And, and, and what I am really intrigued by as a writer is how is the resilience of the American dream as a dream, even though the reality is often so grueling and grotesque. I mean, the, you know, my book about the Sacklers was in part about the kind of perversion of the American dream in which you have a family that actually did make loads and loads of money over the course of one generation, but totally lost its moral compass in the process and unleashed this public health crisis that has killed a lot of people. And in the case of the snakehead, you know, going back to the 19th century in parts of China, they referred to the United States as the gold mountain. There was this sort of fetishization of America as this place where one could make a new life and a fortune. And what was so moving to me about interviewing a lot of these people who came over illegally in the 80s and 90s, often risking their lives to do so, is that when they arrived in the United States, it was a brutal life. You know, they, they, were, they, they were marginalized. They were living in the underground economy. They weren't able to get green cards. They were in, 
in thankless service jobs. They were working like crazy. They were dealing with racism on a day-to-day basis and sending all the money that they could save home. And then what's so heartbreaking is that you would talk to the people back in China, their family members, and when they called home, they would always say, it's great. All the stories are true. America is amazing because there was this sense that you didn't want to let down your family. Often it was your family who had invested their own money to send you over. And so there's this kind of strange sense in which like the mythology gets reinforced, even though people are day by day living with the, the really grinding and um, uh, much less hopeful reality. So it's strange. I mean, I think that part of what is so intriguing to me is the kind of slippage between the American dream and, and the reality. Um, and yet I feel as though the, the dream is in some ways as robust as ever. You know, I was looking at your kind of body of work and I, I suppose I was thinking about the, the murder and the Irish Troubles and a, a CIA covert immigration and rogues and this story. And I wondered if you had any reflections on what about transgressors seem to particularly fascinate yeah. you. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think some of it is, first of all, I just, I've always been really, really interested in secret worlds and, and kind of um, figuring out what's happening beneath the surface. And so the underground economy generally has always been interesting to me. And that was part of what I was trying to do with, with the snakehead was I just, you know, if you go into any immigrant enclave, there's things that you understand at a glance, and then there's things that you don't. And I sort of was wondering, like, how's this economy functioning under the surface? What are the lives of people like? What are the kind of greater dynamics? But yeah, I mean, it's in some ways, I do have these themes I keep coming back to. And I think there's a sort of... Um, you know, my first book, Chatter, I was still sort of figuring out how to write a book. I don't think I, I was in my 20s. I didn't really know what I was doing. And this was the one where I, I started to kind of piece together the type of investigative narrative that I wanted to write. And so for me, if I look at a book like Empire of Pain or, or Say Nothing um, or Wind of Change, for that matter, the idea of kind of deep reporting and then, um, you know, hopefully an absorbing story. This was where I feel like I kind of figured out how to do that. And finally, I would be amiss if I didn't just mention that obviously the um, documentary about the Sacklers has just been nominated for a, a an Oscar. It's obviously a subject you've covered a lot. You know, do you think that the story of the Sacklers is finally reaching a wider audience, or you know, how do you feel about how that story continues to develop and people covering it in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I'm so delighted at the news about the the Oscar nomination. Um, the film is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. I should disclose that I'm in it a little bit, but even if I weren't, I would tell you it's really brilliant and I think a great testament to Nan Golden and to the power of activism um, to actually make changes in, in, you know, in, this, in the world we live in, in which I think it's often quite easy to, to conclude that it's difficult, you know, that one person can't make a big difference, but I think it's a story about her doing so. And I do think it's, it's going to bring the Sackler story to an even larger audience. And I think it'll bring more shame to the Sackler family, which to me feels only appropriate. So I'm, I couldn't be more happy for Laura Poitras, who directed the film, and, and Nan, who produced it and played such a big part in it. And I'm, I'm really delighted to think that more audiences all over the place will be able to, to really see and admire Nan's work. Wonderful. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. That was Patrick Radden Keefe, author of The Snakehead, which is out now in the UK. I'm Poppy Damon. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next. 
who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.